Welcome to the Pacey Performance Podcast. Today, I'm speaking with Head of Strength and Conditioning at the English Institute of Sport, Alex Wolfe. Thanks for tuning in to episode 130 of the Pacey Performance Podcast. So today I have the pleasure in speaking to Head of S&C at the EIS in Alex Wolfe. So Alex has a great CV working with probably one of the most decorated Olympic programs in British Olympic history in the British rowing squad. So Alex was with them for a number of years going through a number of Olympic cycles and has subsequently now become the the leader, the head of SNC at the English Institute of Sport. So it was great to get Alex on to discuss everything from coming into an incredibly already successful program in uh, in British rowing, uh, then programming for such a brutal sport in in the sport of rowing. So that was really interesting little uh, little chat with uh, with Alex, and then a big portion of the podcast which focuses around the performance problem solving which Alex is very passionate about and gives a really uh, really interesting in-depth view on, uh, on what that is and uh, how that problem-solving strategy can be implemented within a strength and conditioning program. At no point do we talk about strength. It's about the, the, the expression of force. And for me, this is where we've, we've changed the, the whole process. That strength training is a methodology, not an outcome. We use strength training, strength training to change a, a force of a velocity characteristic. So just before I get into the podcast, I just want to say a massive thanks to Val Performance, makers of the Nord Board, for sponsoring the episode today. So as always, I say it every week, I know, but I really appreciate the support that them guys give me uh, and give the podcast to allow it to run in its current form. So if you haven't, checked them out. Uh, check them out on Twitter at the underscore Nord Board or visit their website in valdeperformance.com. So massive thanks to them guys. Um, hope you enjoy the chat with Alex and I will speak to you soon. Thanks for tuning in to the Pacey Performance Podcast. So today I have the pleasure in speaking to Head of SNC at the English Institute of Sport, Alex Wolf. So welcome to the podcast, Alex. Thank you very much. Good to be here. It's good to have you, mate. So anyone that doesn't know who you are and what you're doing at the minute, do you just want to give us a little bit of background for us? Um, so yeah, I'm currently been the head of strength conditioning for the EIS for four years. I've been here almost oh, 13, maybe 14 years now. Uh, started on an internship many, many years ago up in Sheffield and slowly made my way down from uh, working in multi-sport environments up in Sheffield to working in athletics in, in London for three years up to the up to Beijing and then spent five and a bit years working with rowing um, up to London and, and halfway through the, the Beige, uh, through the Rio cycle. Um, so yeah, it's, um, it's, it's that's been my well, been my major job for for the last um, uh, last twelve thirteen years, and I suppose how I got into it all was through through through, through being excited about sport while while at university, and actually my, my my undergrad degree was in human biology and sports science at St Mary's, and started working with random athletes um, free of charge, just working in the um, in the, in the gym. Uh, I don't think it was called strength conditioning back then. I think it was probably called bad fitness coaching. Um, <laughs> but it's where I cut cut my teeth on it all, and and then 
it was it was the internship back in 2003 2004 time where with with the EIS just as it had started that really gave me an opportunity to kind of get into into high performance sport um which at that point I had a decision to make around whether I go kind of more health because uh, I was working with primary care trust at the time or more performance um but obviously the performance side is a little bit more exciting and a little bit more more edgy so um yeah I spent Spent the, the the most uh, most of that time uh, um, trying to work out what I'm supposed to be doing. So after then, so which which sports have you worked with in the in the institute? Well, I think I was fortunate enough in in the early days um, in Sheffield. I was given any odds and sods of athletes um, that uh, that came through the door. So I, I pretty much have worked with. Most, if not all, Olympic and Paralympic sports to some degree um, during, during my time here. But the, the sports that I spent most of my time working with has been been um, athletics, um, and I was working with a number of athletes up in Sheffield in the in the early days, and then took a full time role with them in in Lee Valley in, uh, in North London. Um, when was that? In two thousand and six, two thousand and seven time through to two thousand and nine. Um, but then I've also managed, in, in, because of the London Olympics, there were a number of programs which started up like handball and volleyball. They got some investment um, back in the early days to get them get themselves prepared for games where they had a they had a um, guaranteed home, a host nation entry. So I ended up leading the S and C for those programs in the early early days too. Um, but it was really. I suppose athletics and then rowing um, in 2009, which um, in early 2009 that I took that role and spent the majority or the most recent amount of my time um, uh, working with, with with that sport and, and and trying to trying to make a difference difference there. So this current role is are you working with a specific sport? Or are you just overseeing the S and C coaches that are in the institute? So in 2015, I made a decision that I had to step away from doing rowing and uh, head of strength conditioning uh, for the EIS purely on the basis that I was doing both both jobs badly. Um, and I think <laughs> um, at that point there, I realised um, they they were both full time roles, and I like life outside of work was getting getting crazy, and it was uh, neither the neither the jobs were being quite fulfilled to the way they needed to. So I made a decision back then to step away and, and bring in some um, new new coaches to look after rowing. So I stepped away from that. So my role now is to oversee 60 to 65 strength conditioning coaches across all, well, 93% of all Olympic and Paralympic sports. Um, and then my role is to kind of govern quality sure, develop the individuals within each of those sports, but then also have some... Um, uh, fast track solutions for some of those sports around the preparation for games or training methodologies. Um, so I don't work with any one sport. I, I kind of get pulled in and out of sports as and, as and when needed. So obviously someone some that's been involved in a, a big group of coaches in the Institute, I'd be really interested to know, and this wasn't on the agenda. However, like I say, it'd be really interesting for me. What, what kind of um, differences you see in the S&C coaches that were around a couple of years ago to the guys that are coming into the into the institute now? Is there a difference? Is there subtle changes? Where are their influences? I'd be really interested to know kind of your thoughts on that. Yeah, it's a good question. And, and yeah, it is a bit of a curveball, but I'll, I'll try and answer that. Um, the, um, so in... in when, strength, when I first became a strength and conditioning coach, the 
the title in this country had only really just been accepted and the UK Shrimp Conditioning Association had just started. So the, the kind of the birth of S&C in, in the UK was, was there. So there wasn't really a big a big history of that before, before then. So, But a lot of the stuff that I, I read or I was um, influenced by was from the old Russian literature um, texts and or Soviet texts and a lot of the, the work by Mel Sif and there, there was a huge amount of uh, time given or a, a lot of uh, respect given to to that kind of that body of work um, and so when 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 in those those early days when you spoke to people most people would 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 uh, Reference Verkashansky or Sif or Bill Sands or a number of other people from around from around that era, but then as as we've moved through the the, the um through the kind of I suppose more the evolution of technology rather than anything else that information becomes much more readily available and there's obviously the podcast and there's been a few big um uh online seminar courses you can do and um things like uh, Mike Boyles and Mike Robertson and all, all of that those types of uh, stuff comes out and there's much there's much more of a, a kind of a western and a much more applied approach to a lot of the information that comes out now um which is interesting because now when you talk to a number of the younger S&C coaches have they have they read say super training or have they read um um some of the the early seminal work by Berkosansky and so on it's not necessarily the first place they go and look for information, um, and when you give it to them, the, the kind of the, sometimes it's interesting to see how how their minds are blown about some of the things they are talking about from the sixties and seventies, which they're discussing now, and actually, um, it, it, it's it's no no real difference. And I think that that's probably the biggest biggest difference is people's influences. But you have a much wider influence scope, um, so maybe the breadth. It's much wider, but the depth in some of those areas isn't isn't quite as high. Um, and I suppose the second area is um, probably around experience. Um, and we, we talk about, uh, but back back in the day, there was there was no strength conditioning degree, so you tended to do fitness training alongside whatever else you did, and then um, you had a, had a, uh, an undergraduate in a sports science related or fitness related uh, or coaching related area. Uh, now uh, there's there's a, there's a massive increase in, in, in degrees, which is brilliant because it gives people some real underpinning knowledge and, and um, science behind and rigor behind what they do. But there is a potential uh, lack of of, of uh, vocational or, or coaching coaching experience during, during that, and I think that's a bit which probably we see from a, from from the high performance or from the institute point of view is that um, the differentiating factor between people who come into the market now is no longer a degree or an MSc it's the quality of their coaching experience and we often talk about accountable coaching and accountable coaching meaning that it's not just coaching an individual to a to, without without a without a purpose that the purpose is aligned to the coach's philosophical approach to developing the athlete and that the service you're delivering is totally aligned to to the performance um, goal of the athlete and coach and often we find that the biggest difference is people just coach to try and make strength conditioning or the results of strength conditioning better without necessarily focusing on on the um the the, the end goal that actually performance performance is what matters and that's a bit which is probably missing and is something we're trying to address with some of our relationships with a number of education establishments, um, St Mary's University and Hartbury are two that have given us a lot of time and have been very engaged with us around how we can help develop undergrad and MSc programs to kind of really meet the needs that that part of the need for the for the um, for the future and evolving S and C coach.
Mm-hmm. So for, for any kind of young coach that may be listening, what, what's, what's your advice that you would give them just to get, get out and coach as much as possible? Or does that coaching experience have to be, well, it has to be obviously quality. So, I mean, I get, I hear it a lot with just get out and coach, coach anything. Like, is that, is that the solution or is that the, is that the, the good grounding or does that coaching have to be a place where it's going to foster, be an environment that's going to foster that experience? Yeah, I, I don't think it, I don't think it needs to be one or the other, but you can't have mm-hmm. one without the other, I suppose. Yeah, okay. So, but when I first got into this, I was I, I paid my way through university by being a, uh, a gym instructor and personal trainer, and the two things that, that that taught me was one, it taught me to coach and actually engage with the people I was working with. Um, primarily that because if you're a really bad personal trainer, you wouldn't get paid for that. You would, somebody wouldn't come back to see you, so you wouldn't get paid. So you had to you had to um, deliver something which they were they were they wanted. But second of all, it made you think about how you coached. Um, and actually about your what what the key the key things are which engage people and coaching is more than just the ability to coach a bat squat it's the ability to build rapport uh, and and motive and create a motivational climate for that individual to genuinely be the best they can be in in, in the tasks that you're putting in front of them so that that's the early bit but in that bit I didn't really have any accountability I just went off and did what I thought I needed to do and you know it was people lost weight or they got stronger but it wasn't necessarily against a a genuine performance goal but without that grounding it's very difficult to get hours and hours and hours of experience of pure accountable coaching and actually sometimes you don't need that you just need to be able to you actually do just need to get out and coach and actually be thrown into the mixer Um, I used to coach a uh, an under 16s swimming club and I, by no means I'd say it was a high performing phone club I was just asked to on a Sunday evening have an hour and a half of this under 16s uh, swimming club um, and I used to crap myself every Sunday afternoon because it was, uh, was 19, 20, 20 years old not really knowing what I was going to do with these guys and it was um, um, and some of them were only a couple of years younger than me but it, it made me actually it forced me to be a better coach and how to manage like young athletes, how to manage large groups of people um, and try and create some kind of st- structure in there. But on the other side, if you only have that and you don't have the bit around the accountable bit, it's, it's very difficult to, to demonstrate your ability to work within a within a high-performing environment or in a, in a multidisciplinary team. And that discipline, a multidisciplinary team includes the coach and, and the athlete. And that's a bit is where... Need, need demonstration that you've aligned your service delivery and, and the support you give to to the outcome which is i say if it's um, running 100 meters is to run a sub 10 100 meters and if if you're not aligning your your coaching delivery to a performance goal like that then actually all you're trying to do is increase the ability of the athletes in the weight room or in any of the other fitness parameters without regard to actually what those parameters or how those those parameters are linked to a performance outcome. And that's a bit where accountable coaching becomes really important because you can't do that unless you engage the coach and athlete. So there does need to be a degree of that. Um, but I don't think you can do, you can't do all of your work within that in the early, early days because there just isn't enough performance people like that. And also it, that's almost a full-time job in itself. Mm-hmm. And that leads nicely into what we're going to chat about next, which was your experience with GB Rowing. And the first thing that came into my mind when I thought about that was you coming into a, a program that is obviously extremely successful with a big, um, I suppose, media hype around it as uh, what had gone before. What was it like coming into that sort of environment? 
Um, you, you're probably going to hear this a lot, of, a lot for me today. But another time, I, I, I crap myself. Like it. <laughs> <laughs> you, you walk in, and, and you're absolutely right. You, you go in, and the uh, being around Olympic sport for five or six years before I got, got in, into that um, that environment. Everybody knew the success of British rowing, and you know the big names that had come before before that, um, and one or two of those big names still being in the program. Um, I'm not just talking about athletes, like talking about coaches as well. Like Jurgen Grobel and Paul Thompson are revered around the world for their success as as as, um, as coaches. Like Jurgen's, I think, has won eleven consecutive gold medals since the seventies at the Olympic Games, which is an outstanding achievement. And I don't think there's many people that can can, can rival that. So when you walk into that environment, and then you know, I'm 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 supposed to be adding value to this 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 program and you've got this guy or two two head coaches who've who've you know one the Paul Thompson's won the first uh, gold medal for for Australia back in the um uh, Sydney Olympics as well so like you know there, there's some real credibility in there and I'm like crap how am I gonna how am I gonna actually support this program and, and not fall flat on my face because these guys have been doing it for years and know much more about the sport than, than me and I, I walked in not knowing anything about the sport um and the bit when I walked in, I was like, I have to get up to speed as quickly as possible to understand exactly what the coaches coaches want. Uh, and I very quickly worked out that the way in which the women in lightweights operate is very different to how the men men's program operate. And I needed to deliver effectively two solutions for the same sport because they were effectively two different squads. Um, and that was a real challenge for me because there were things that were done really well in each of these squads which weren't necessarily easily transferable um, for one reason or another to, to to the other. And it was that balance the whole time. And then there was a balance of like who who you aligned to. Are you more aligned to the women's and lightweights or the men's program? And if you became too balanced, uh, more aligned to one, then the other, the other program would say, well, actually we need his time and um so it became a real a real a really interesting bit but where i had to i had to quickly learn my feet around around that and the bit i spent the most amount of time on wasn't about actually you know i was very confident coming out of track and field that i could write a strength training program which would develop the force and velocity characteristics needed for for rowing um but it was the bit i spent time on was understanding the coaches and getting to know the athletes um and i made some massive mistakes along uh along the way i remember talking to one of the athletes screaming well not screaming shouting across the gym that one of the athletes uh, while he was chin-upping and he um telling him to lock his arms out as he descended from the chin-up he just let go of the chin-up bar walked the 25 meters across the gym bearing in mind he's six foot something and 100 <laughs> kilos literally bowed his forehead into my forehead and he just calmly said don't you ever call out me at the gym again and i'm like okay <laughs> um, so that was my that was kind of session number two maybe in, in with the men's program so i learned quickly how to how to manage those individuals and how to how to get into those uh um spaces and yeah, so I, I i screwed up more than i than i um uh, made good decisions in those early days so yeah it was yeah. and you crapped yourself again yeah, well, yeah, it's, 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 a, it's a continual theme you'll hear across <laughs> my, my, my journey of, of making massive mistakes and um, and uh, feeling very inadequate at the end of it. <laughs> so what was, the, what was the process like getting aligned with the coaches themselves? So obviously with the athletes, don't tell them to lock their arms out, which is obviously a number one role, but how did you align yourself with the coaches? How did you kind of get in with the coaches? So with, with the coaches had two 
very similar but slightly divergent opinions on or philosophies on how they develop develop the athletes. And for me, it was I really need to understand how how that really um, what that really meant to them. So for one, for, for Jurgen, it was you know I, I asked him one day what he wanted, and he's like, I want strong athletes. I was like, anything else? He's like, yes, I want them big and strong, which. <laughs> which what it, what it, what he was meaning was was this kind of physicality of it, and it was trying to get down to the real depths of what did he really mean by the physicalities, and, and I, I really understood like his, his vision of strength conditioning was very very um, specific, and as long as I didn't, as long as those uh, specific bits that he felt were really important were achieved, the rest of the program was up for grabs, and he was then really um, open to what it um, what the other things could offer to that program. Um, so we were really, we were. I worked really hard with him just to kind of really get to grips of what those important key bits were, and that was me spending time, like, like hours and hours, uh, cycling along the, the riverside or the or the or the um, uh, the lakeside, watching him coach his crews along the um, uh, along the riverbank, which was something really interesting because, like, one of the most fascinating guys I've ever I've ever met, and have have the the fondest and deepest uh, memory, deepest respect and memories of him uh, were those times with him. Like you'd cycle alongside him, and he wouldn't say anything for two kilometres, and then the boat would turn around, and he'd say one thing, and the whole boat would move better than you know, move up. And it was like fascinating, absolutely fascinating. So I had to spend lots of time just being in his presence to realise, for him to realise that I wasn't just an S and C coach who was going to be in the gym and. I, I went to things that probably our wrestling sea coach previously had never had never really spent a lot of time. So like day one of the season would always be down at Cavisham, the, the, the rowing base in near Reading. Um, and I would head down there for the first day, not because I had any training or anything down there, but just to greet all the athletes and say hello and say hello to the coaches. And um, and that made a massive cultural change that it was no longer strength conditioning was a, se- a separate part to the, to the, to the program. Um, the women's and lightweights program was was different. There was probably more resistance around my involvement, primarily because the chief coach was writing programs for the athletes, strength training programs for the athletes. When I walked into that point, um, and one of the things I said to my recruitment is, if, if I was going to take this role, then I'd need to have autonomy over the over the strength training program, which was agreed. But in practice, that was a very different different bit. So we, we I had to convince uh, Paul that. I could deliver something with more value than what he was already adding, already writing, and that became a really, really interesting time because um, that took eight or nine months of going to and throwing around what we did before he gave me, you know, carte blanche almost to, to do what we wanted. And actually, I was doing an event a couple of weeks, um, a couple of weeks ago, um, and I text. Um, I text Paul to, and I asked him a question. So, what was it that really frustrated you about me when I was working with you, and what was the thing that you really, um, that you really, what you really valued? Uh, I won't go into the frustrations, but um, I'm just reading the text out. Um, there, there were two things I liked. You put the sport-specific performance first and foremost uh, in your mind, and secondly, you made uh, intent a hallmark. Uh, and he did say, thirdly, you loved beer and made it, making good limoncello. But I think the first two were probably <laughs> were, 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 were the most important that were around um, generally lining into his performance philosophy and, and secondly around intent and intent being really like the intent to actually do everything at the right intensity. And that's not maximal intent, but if you're stretching or you're mo- mobilising at a hip joint, are you, have you got the deliberate 
uh, intent to try and change that, or are you talking to your colleagues and from the boat um, around what happened on the, on the weekend? And it's just changing mindset around what we did there. And I think uh, Paul there probably described that very, very effectively. That um, um, those are the two things I went in, and that he valued most, and that made it very easy that we um, we uh, we could move forward. And I think on both coaches, the thing that was very, I, I very quickly tried to do was find the common ground and the common ground was athletes that we were both there well everybody was there to try and help help them um, perform uh, and win medals but in a responsible and a and a and a, um, and a, and a um, holistic approach and that was really really which kind of brought us together to realize okay we may differ our opinions but we do share the same opinion that it's not about us it's about them you mentioned there that you obviously gone down to the, the meet and greeted the, greeted the athletes and things, and that was a bit of a shift in having not having SNC as a separate entity. Is have you found that later on and even before your time at British Road, that SNC is seen a bit of a separate entity? It can very quickly um, be uh, seen like that. Mm-hmm. I think it's it's very easy for you to. Um, I think history is probably as a discipline. I think history has probably not served us too well because what we I don't think strength and conditioning defines what we do effectively. Um, the very word having strength in the title implies it's strength training, and actually, I think it's physical preparation is probably a, a better description of of what we do. And it actually, non technical physical development is probably um, uh, even better description of what we do. And I think sometimes it's very easy when we become employed by our strength and conditioning coaches that you take some of the burden off the off the coaches and they're like, yeah, off you go and deliver three strength and conditioning sessions a week without real regard to what um, what um, what's being delivered. So it can really easily be seen as some as, as an isolated or non integrated um, part of the um, part of the process. And I remember talking to one of my colleagues, Tommy Yule, when we were both working on track and field, and he, one of the comments we said, like strength training or strength condition training, is just training. It's just done by a different person in a different, different environment, and we've got to view it as training. And training has a has a load, and has a volume, and has a burden, and it um, creates stress. And we have to manage all of that. Um, and that's a bit. If we don't, that's why it's so important for us to be aligned to, to what the coach's philosophy is, because if they're trying to develop a, you know, in the rowing example, let's say they're trying to improve um, aerobic capacity, and at the same time we're trying to improve maximal strength. Well. Maximal strength is not necessarily going to have a, a major impact on the um, on the aerobic capacity, um, although it may create more more fatigue and more muscle soreness, and therefore it, it reduces ability to row and could end up having an impact. But on the other side, the endurance training or the aerobic capacity work will um, massively influence what you can do in, in in the weight room. So, not being aligned and doing things in silos is a really dangerous position to be, um, and I can't say I've been successful in every job I've had doing that, and it's only been probably the last eight or nine years where I've really strived to do that. But yeah, it, partly in the early days is because people didn't really know what we were, what we could offer, and that was um, naivety on on our side or my side around around that, and thinking people should should know what it is, so we're just going to do it, and probably thinking I knew better, um, and that's that was 
that's uh, often the case um, in, in my early career is that well we'll just you know, we'll go on first principles we'll, we'll get you strong and that will transfer to how fast you run we're very that's a big leap of faith that that will, that will actually happen um, so yeah it's it's um, that's a really long-winded say winded way of saying that um, yes it can often be seen as, a, <laughs> as an isolated part to the training process just going to take a very quick break in the chat with Alex. Hope you enjoyed part one. So in part two, there is more on Alex's performance problem solving, which I know he's presented on. Um, so you can look forward to hearing more about that. But just before we go into part two, just want to say a massive thanks to Fatigue Science for sponsoring this episode today. So Fatigue Science came up in conversation in a previous episode with Brandon Marcello when he was talking about sleep monitors. So I've had a Fatigue Science ready band for probably three or four months now and got some really interesting insight into my cognitive fatigue. So it's gonna be Fatigue Science is a sleep tracker. It's not a watch, it's not an activity tracker, it's not you're not gonna it's not gonna tell you how many steps you've made during the day like a Fitbit or something like that but it's going to give you a really in-depth insight into your sleep from uh, average effectiveness to the sleep quantity, sleep latency, wake variance etc etc but the big thing for me is the prediction of cognitive fatigue which has been developed um, with the US military so if you haven't checked them out yet uh, I know they're in a number of uh, institutions in the, the the US, not so much in the UK, um, but I know that there is gathering interest within what fatigue science are doing uh, from this side of the Atlantic. So if you are interested in getting to know a little bit more about fatigue science, you can visit their website at fatiguescience.com. I definitely encourage you to check them out. And as always, the guys that I collaborate with with, the sponsor, with sponsors on the podcast, great guys behind the scenes, uh, very supportive of what's going on um, from the podcast side in the industry. Um, so I'd really encourage you to check them out. So over to part two with Alex and hope you enjoy. Cool. So I just want to move on slightly and just um, talk about your performance problem solving yeah um did you have you presented on this by the way did you present uh, on this i was supposed to not? present in the uksa conference in 2015 uh, yeah i couldn't make it in the end but i, I presented it uh what have i presented i presented it uh at the asca conference in australia uh in 2015 as well okay um, but it probably hasn't i probably haven't presented it in the uk actually uh bits exclusive yeah, exclusive. Here you go. Um, <laughs> um, it, could be, it could be rubbish, but who knows? Uh, and, and, it, and it may not be right. Um, so yeah, I think, I think performance problem solving came from a when I took over the head of service role uh, four years ago. Like the the bit that we had to think about was that we had thirty um, odd sports that we work with within the institute and sixty plus practitioners or coaches working within those within those sports. So what? A I don't know team sprint in cycling looks like, and the service delivery you give to them is entirely different to what gymnastics does, or synchronized swimming does, or what rowing does. And the bit was, well, what connects it? What connects all of our all of our delivery together? And that was the bit I wanted to find was like, well, what are the things which um, um, one connect all the strength and conditioning coaches across every single sport we work with, um, and two, what kind of separates us from uh, the sports going to 
external organisations to get their, their delivery. So they're not they're not um, obliged to come to the Institute of Sport. They make a decision to come to the Institute of Sport to get their service. So what 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 is it that we do which keeps them coming back and not going to to third parties? And that's where it came down to the performance problem solving. And when, when we when we talk about problem solving, it's do we genuinely understand the performance needs? And for us, that is like, well, what does it take um, to win? So it's like a performance backwards approach. So if we know that, um, let's say for um, say for rowing, for instance, if you want to, you know, the men's the men's eight might need to row uh, five minutes twenty odd seconds to win a gold medal in in Tokyo. I don't know what I don't know what how how accurate or reliable that is, but let's say that's the time on that's on on its own. Like you don't really that doesn't really give you any detail about um, how how you can impact on that. But then if you break down like what are the components of performance, and that goes from a like technical, technical, psychological, physiological component, you can start saying, well, actually, you you have to be able to race potentially three times um, over an eight day period. Um, if you don't make it through the, if you don't win your heat, then you have to go through the weapon charge. So it's potentially, do you want two races or three races? So suddenly that becomes the tactical and psychological, t- tactical and technical, sort of psychological component. Do you want to win, win your weapon charge? Well, if you want to win that, then you get a race straight to the final. So there's that component there. Well, how do you win? How do you win a race? Well, there's a, an aerobic capacity. There's a, I know, a, a, um, a an, an economy component to rowing, and there's a an ability to produce force component. And then it coming down, down, down to that bit there, and then that's where the, the performance problems are, or the, the clarity of outcomes becomes really important. So if we know that you need to develop, um, I don't know, leg extension, uh, concentric leg extension, maximal force expression, what does that really mean? Well, it means well we need to have legs which can really um, uh, exert a very large amount of force during the drive phase of the rowing stroke. So that's really, really clear. At no point do we talk about strength. It's about the, the, the expression of force. And for me, this is where we've, we've changed the, the whole process. That strength training is a methodology, not an outcome. We use strength training, strength training to change a, a force of a velocity characteristic. So by saying we need to develop the leg strength for the rowers, well, why? Why do we need to do that? And that's that's a kind of the, the, the performance problem solving, is to really define the, the problem that you're trying to solve. And for us... Um, each athlete had a the connect. What connected all of us as coaches was that we were very good at being able to define with real clarity what we were trying to change to a point where we were able to say, like, very rarely now we hear an essence EIS and C coach go, uh, the, the uh, badminton players need to develop um, leg strength. It would be much more about their the ability to um, enter and exit a. Um, a deep lunge which requires some eccentric loading whatever, whatever it might be but it's, it's very clear and then on the other side of that is the flexibility of solutions so our, our equation is clarity of outcome multiplied by flexibility the sum of flexibility of solutions so if we're really clear on the outcome but we have a very small pool of uh, solutions you're still likely to be um, develop a a very good program where if you have a very very unclear clarity of outcome and a high degree of uh, solutions, you may be answering the wrong question. And that's where it became really, really important for us that we have to start answering the right questions and align it to actually a genuine performance performance bit. So that that was our kind of first first bit around around that. So the individuals know their sport better than anybody else. 
um, and they understand, so they had the context, and the context is really important. They understand the performance questions, but the flexibility of solutions is what they understand around the physiological principles or, or any of the other components which are, are related to that. But it also includes looking at the problem from a, um, from a almost a Google Earth rather than a Google Street perspective. So stop trying to solve the problem from an S&C view. So like what, I remember having a discussion with a guy talking about um, uh, swim starts and he was telling me about what, what he'd been asked to do because there was some really poor poor performances in the swim starts. Well, I asked simple questions like, well, how many times does he start? Actually practice his starts through the week, came back and it was maybe two or three times. And it's not two or three times a week. It was he had two or three practices full stop. And it's like, well, why don't you increase that before you start trying to do all these fancy exercises to try and improve his horizontal propulsion? And lo and behold, his sprint starts improved. So that's a really important bit. It's like looking at it from a Google Earth perspective rather than um, Google Street. Um, and then it's kind of like, because we are with our 60 S&C coaches and there's 250 practitioners within the institute, it's the power of the network. So can you, the flexibility of solutions doesn't necessarily lie within an individual. It's a collective brilliance or the collective genius of everybody within the organisation. So somebody in the organisation will have done something similar to what you're trying to answer. And it's trying to connect the people better so that became a really important bit but fundamentally then we had our we have what sits underneath that is our three pillars um and our we have our central pillar is coaching and as you call it like character to deliver and on that is the ability to coach but also the act of being a coach so coaching a technical model is one thing so if can you coach the change of direction or the acceleration models that we have within the institute or the weightlifting models um, versus the act of being a coach and the ability to engage with the coaches, the athletes, the support staff, the, the multidisciplinary team to actually build a rapport and create a meaningful intent around, around what, um, what athletes are supposed to be doing. And we, we say that's our central pillar because if you take the other two away, the whole structure will still will still stand, but we have to be freaking good coaches at the end of the day. And it's in our title. Um, the other two supporting pillars are around diagnostics and uh, monitoring and planning and programming. And diagnostics and monitoring is, is you probably have seen enough EIS presentations to know that EIS love a drop jump. Um, and that's, if you, in 2012, I remember watching pretty much every uh, coach I worked with talk about it. Um, thankfully for rowing, we, we don't, but we don't uh, walk on land, we sit in, sit in boats, so we never had to do it. But the, the, the idea was that if we can measure, to some degree, some of the, um, the physical characteristics that we're trying to change, then it gives us much better insight into um, what things we actually need to program for and actually track those changes more effectively. So there's a big bit around the kind of the validity, reliability and sensitivity of our testing and making sure it actually does what it says it does and we know what uh, meaningful changes are and actually does it relate to what we're trying to change. We've created infrastructures around those diagnostics and testings and monitoring systems which means that every, if you do a, a drop jump, everybody across the country does exactly the same protocol. How hockey use that information versus netball is entirely different, but the, the process in which they collect that information is exactly the same. The final pillar is around uh, planning and programming. So 
based upon what we see as a coach and from the testing information that we have and understanding the context of the sport, we should be able to write a training programme which meets the individual demands of the of the of the athlete. And that's really important. So it's not just purely done on what we think is important. So we do a lot of prognostic stuff as well. So that we, we we'll ask a lot of our coaches, well, if you write this programme, what will happen in six weeks' time? And we get them to predict what they um what they think will happen. Um and the reason we do that is to actually, well, just writing five times five for back squat is, yeah, okay, is maximum strength training or high force expression training. But, like, what do you think will happen in four weeks' time? And it makes them think about your, their training program, the athletes they're working with, the, the, the time of the year it, it's all in. And it makes, them, it makes them think about are they writing the right training program or are they solving the right question right now? Um, and that all then sits on our, our bed of creativity. And one of the things we we like about the institute is, and we've been very adamant that we're not, is to create or, or to employ or create everybody the same. The reason what, what makes it, the institute is great because of its people, not the other way around. And having people who are diverse um, is brilliant because that allows multiple different ways to come up with a, to come up with a solution for the same problem. Um, and that's what we totally drive the individuals to be like you do it the way you want to do and we'll we'll support you in, in the manner in which it's in which it's done so that 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 then allows each individual to genuinely go after what's important for them um and in the way they want to but we still have the kind of the the you know, the understanding performance need, the clarity of outcome and the, the flexibility solutions and our three key pillars of what strength conditioning does and as long as you work within those boundaries you know some of those boundaries don't even exist, so you can recreate those boundaries yourself. But and that that's the beauty of the, of the model that it's, it's it's evolving, it's flexible, and it's individual. Fantastic. So one thing I just wanted to touch on there was, and one thing that the the institute pushes, um, especially a lot in their um, application, um, the kind of job descriptions and things, is that is the network. How much? How many times? And how much are you bringing in the technical coaches? to work with the SNCs on a kind of ES whole level. So the, the SNCs and the physios and the kind of medical department, the SNC department can actually learn from the, maybe say Rowan can learn from the netball coach or the, you know, of across all different sports. Is that, is that happening a lot? So it's, um, it happens, how do you describe it? It happens when it needs to happen, I suppose. Yeah, okay. The, yeah. the best way to describe it. One of one of our, our, our kind of our philosophical approach to, um, and this is a very discipline specific approach, um, but it's, it's around facilitative leadership. And what, what we mean by that is that the the individual at the centre of it, uh, so not the technical leader myself, um, the coach, it, they own they own the, the problem space. And to own the problem space, they need to know where they currently are, where they need to get to. Um, and if they, if that problem space requires them to go and talk to an, a different sport, as a as a group of leaders, we will help them um, recreate a, or create an environment which allows them to learn from those those key personnel f- from that. So it does happen, but what, one of the things we were, you know. We, we we struggle with is we haven't got an infinite amount of resource in terms of time or money. Um, we actually we're 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 time and money limited to a degree, so we have to be really effective in what we do. So there's we we start putting these things on at the time when they're needed, rather than consistently having them on, because sometimes that problem space hasn't hasn't been created yet. So um, when the problem arises, 
it's almost like a call to arms and it's that's the point where we'll we'll make something make something happen and we have a number of different ways of doing that whether it's and very rarely do we have it simply as a as a meeting where you go meet meet them it's like they will have to present their problem what they're trying to create and explain to the people that they are they're presenting to why they've been asked to come into the room um, and why they and, and how they think they can help solve this problem so it totally defines the role clarity of everybody in the room it defines what the problem space is um and it, it, while it's not necessarily there to solve that problem there and then, it's to give a, a, a time, space, and structure to the individual to think about that, and then to call upon the resource group, so the other sports, or the other people within within the high performance network, to actually help um, solve that problem. Um, but the beauty of it is is that it's the individual who gets to choose what bits they want to explore, not the panel and not the people. So it's all on their terms. Um, so it becomes a, quite a, a, a nice, like, facilitated process where um, everybody knows what what's expected of them, and they're not expected to come up with a solution, but just to generate lots of ideas and hone down on a, on a few of those ideas and try and um, uh, pull that into practice. Excellent. Well, I'm just going to uh, round up there and, and thank you for your time. But where can people keep up to date with what you've got going on? I mean. Social media wise, yeah, social media. I, I'm really poor on social media. I go through fits and starts of it, but um, yeah, my Twitter handler is Alex P or at Alex P Wolf, um, and you can get. Uh, I, I tend to um, drop articles or reviews or um, forward on job bits and things on there. That's probably the best place for me. Well, that's the only place for me because I'm not on anything else. So, um, but yeah, um, and yeah, that, that's the best place. And if there are any. The bit, bit, bit I love about social media, like it's a, it's a platform to help people share and develop. So if there are things from what I've said today, or there's things around recruitment in the institute, or anything like that, like that is the best place. And I'll always reply to um, uh, direct messages and um, um, whatever on, on on that. And so that would be the best the best place to 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 meet, I suppose. Superb. Well, thanks again for your time, Alex, and uh, and we'll keep in touch and hopefully uh, speak to you soon. Brilliant. Thank you very much. Thanks for tuning in to episode 130 of the Pacey Performance Podcast. Massive thanks to Alex for giving up his time to talk to me and give some really interesting insights into what's going on at the English Institute of Sport. So again, massive thanks to the sponsor of the podcast today who are Valve Performance, makers of the Nordboard and Fatigue Science. So I would definitely encourage you to check them both out and give your support for them guys who are giving their support for everything that's going on the podcast so i hope you enjoyed the episode got some more great guests coming up over the next couple of weeks and i will speak to you soon